1: which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Ready to pop the
0: question? Welcome
1: to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance, a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal.
0: We are all on the same team. Know you're wrong and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again.
2: Your defense has got to be better. Leave no doubt for nothing.
0: Great moments. Are born from great opportunity.
1: Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Our great coach on this episode is Noel Donaldson. Noel is a rowing coach. He was a coxswain and competed at the 1979 World Championships and then transitioned into coaching in 1980. In 1990, he began coaching Australia's Awesome Foursome, who won Olympic golds in 1992 and 1996, as well as five World Championships. In 2013, he became the coach of the New Zealand team of Hamish Bond and Eric Murray and also managed to coach them to -to back-to-back Olympic gold medals. The fact that he has coached two separate crews to -to back-to-back gold medals puts him in very rarefied air. In fact, he is a serial winning coach whose wisdom transcends sport. And some of the key highlights from our interview were the importance of treating each new campaign as something separate from the last one and setting goals that are appropriate for that team in that moment not simply reflecting on the past to set future expectations. How the awesome foursome would go about debriefing after a performance. And importantly, how they had the ability to switch on and off, which is something that Noel thinks is lacking a little with today's athletes. And he's learning as he has matured as a coach that winning at all costs can cause mental health challenges that end up meaning That winning is only temporary It's a great interview And I hope you enjoyed as much as we did And just before we go to the interview If you like what we do here on the podcast Then head over to our website Thegreatcoachespodcast.com There you will find loads of exclusive audio and video content That you can download and share with your teams, friends and family To bring a different context to the challenges that they might be facing And now, please enjoy our interview with Noel Donaldson.
0: You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast.
1: Noel Donaldson, good morning and welcome to The Great Coaches Podcast. Good morning to you, Paul. Happy to have you here, Noel, and something easy to get us going. Could you tell us where you are in the world, perhaps what time it is, and what you've you've done so far today?
2: Well I'm not long out of bed it's Thursday morning um the 4th of May I think it is here um which is normally a slower morning a bit of regeneration for athletes so they start at 9am it's just after 7am here I'm in the Melbourne University Boat Club what they call it Cafe Academus so it's just a bit of a pun there for a, a little meeting room where the athletes can come and do some study, being a university boat club. There's very, very rarely anyone in here, mind you, so that might be some indicator of uh, they might prefer to be on the water than hitting their books, so um, it's fairly private here, and I've got a couple of hours till the, the troops come down and start their day's training.
1: Well, thank you for spending those couple of hours with us talking about rowing, the Olympics, gold medals, and I guess all things leadership. And I, I want to start, Noel, by just asking you about some of the great coaches you've either worked with or seen close up. Dick Tonks, Alan Cotter, Brian Richardson, and of course there's there's Marty Aitken too. And I'm, I'm just wondering from this perspective, what do you think the great coaches do differently that sets them apart?
2: I think the first thing is sort of from a personality point of view, you know, we're all different. You know, I think if, someone said, describe Dick Tonks, you know, so well, give me 10 minutes you know, and I'll tell you about someone who doesn't fit in the, the box of the people who you meet, you know, most of the days, you know, and I think that's pretty true for most of them. And um, it's easy to criticise ourselves um, to say that this is some funny mannerisms that you might notice by a particular person like that, but I think in one sense you actually have to have it, you know. I'm sure... People if they ask the same question about me, you know, they'd say that I'm a just a uh, you know short, loudmouth ex coxswain who thinks he knows it all. You know, people would wax lyrical about, about what your personality is. But I think if you if you're not strong in yourself, um, and that doesn't mean you have to be verbose like I am, but if you if you sit a bit quietly in the background, I, I think that's less uh, influence you might have on on certainly the top end people, you know, who are who are looking for the, the as you use the word, leadership before, who are looking for your leadership. And, and and I think you control a little bit better, and I don't mean that, that word in a controlling sense, but, you know, if you're a little bit different as distinct from just the, the run of the mill, like off the street type sort of thing there too, then we're then, um, not trying to level the playing field, but I think the, the respect sort of thing comes out of a little bit of the quirkiness that we might all have. So I think that's one aspect of And, of course, the people who you mentioned, uh, Dick's a master coach, but like all of us, um, our reputation comes because of our good athletes, you know, and there's no question, you know, D- Dick's greatest ability was his ability to align and understand that the best athletes needed the best coach, and so that was him, you know, in his own situations. So once you've then got them, you can then do something with them. So he he was an absolute master at getting small groups of people and, and working them really hard, um, and his regime was pretty tough in terms of what it was. When I took over Eric and Hamish from that there, some of that was trying to get a little bit away from the oppressiveness of what he thought you needed, you know, the, just that absolute discipline to the regularity and how hard training needed to be if you were going to get to the top. So he taught them some wonderful lessons, but they weren't going to probably survive in that regime for the rest of their careers the scenario. So that's one reason why, you know, I was involved with them. Others there you mentioned, Alan Cotter, who's a great mate. Alan and I coxed against one another. He coxed New Zealand and I coxed Australia. So he was my boss. He was a coach, you know, a good coach in his own right. But um, uh, he was he was a good leader, but he was tough. You know, he's had a nickname of Mr. No-No, you know. So you went to him and asked a question and you knew the answer would probably be no. So you did a lot of homework before you went there if you wanted to progress something. And I saw that because we we're contemporaries, is great leadership from my point of view because it was really clear, you know, you, there's no yes, maybes, buts or anything like that there too. So, you know, we work really well together and we're, we're, we're great mates today. He's coming over to watch the All Blacks in a couple of months' time and we'll catch up and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Brian Richardson, you know, Richard and I, we were in the same boat together. I was Cox and he was, cut, uh, he was the stroke of the boat. So we sat face-to-face in state and international campaigns. So, you know, you have a respect about the human being right from the very beginning and, and he had an uncanny knack and sense of feel with crews as well and was very much sort of his way And he was fairly quiet um, from what he actually did but he, he he was hugely respected because he was an you know like a 15 year international type athlete you know so he'd done all the hard yards and he was a Solid sort of citizen, you know, and so therefore he, he commanded great respect from from his athletes, and he was a very artful type coach in terms of the boat and you know, in terms of what he did. So some real differences in um, in in people there, you know. I worked with Tim McLaren, you know, we started our uh, campaigns together, and he's ended up in the states, you know, and he he sort of had his, his sort of own unique way and and uh, great teacher of young athletes you know he was a phys ed teacher as I was there too and you know he would teach them manners behaviors and those sort of things there you know, if you want to get into this game this, you've got to act and behave a certain way so he was a master at that let alone his, his, his coaching skills um, Reinhold Barchi was one of my early mentors and you know, Reinhold showed people how tough you could actually be um, and, and he was quite old school by today's standards but it certainly worked for him and it worked for me as well too when I was actually coming through because he bollocks me a few times about what I was or wasn't actually doing and and that was good at the time, you know. Um, it's harder to do that sort of stuff to, in today's time but he was really influential sort of for me from that beginning and, and it was also showing you the way through, and you use an example, through, through the mire of uh, administration and the like, you know. He just took no prisoners, you know. He just just barreled through and said, "This is what we need, and this is what we're going to get," you know. Um, so I was a little mini me in that regard there too, trying to, um, you know, get your way. And the early, and today it's a lot more professional and those sort of things. But it was a good start, sort of, for me to be around people like that and great mentors. And out of the sport, David Parkin. I did my internship for sports science with him. Um, then we worked a bit together. He asked me to run a a, a course within his sports coaching and administration course so you know master afl coach as well too so i've been lucky you know i've sort of rubbed shoulders with all those sort of guys there and they've taught me uh, you know huge things and i'm hoping there's a few that i might have helped along the way you know which is a really important thing there too where they might look back and say well i helped them you know for some of the same reasons
1: talk a little bit about looking backwards but we're going to hold it for a bit later in the interview if we we can Noel. but I want. You were talking about the differences in those great coaches that you've you've experienced, and I want to pick up this theme of differences because you've taken crews to seven Olympics, and I'm just wondering how you've seen the focus on winning change over that time.
2: Yeah, it, it is. It's. I mean, uh, what's the uh, sports commission's new win well? You know, so um, it, it, it was a bit more win at all costs in the early days, and now, you know, when people are talking about mental health and the damage caused by the win-at-all-costs type uh, attitude. Um, and, and I think that's reasonably contemporary. I think there's um, a purpose for it. You know, we, I suppose if you put a bit of a, a, a joke towards it, it's to win well, we probably prefer to win well by two lengths rather than one length, you know, that's what... You could redefine winning well um, by winning by more, uh, and we do have to watch those casualties. But there's a lot of happy athletes, you know, when you do quite well, and, and of course some of them there. It's it's a real struggle and a relief when they finish. So the spectrum of that, in terms of putting the big W sort of in front of everything, there is very hard to define in any short period of time, um, and it's very circumstantial to any person, crew um, and the like, you know, if you've got someone who in the reality doesn't have the ability, you wouldn't think when they start their campaign to win, not that you're not going out there after it, but you have to be, you have to lead them in a realistic way forward. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage to trying to aim too high and the like, but if you've got people who are multiple world champions, well, they don't want to, to lose. And there's one quote and you've been very good at picking up my old quotes. I said it after 96, um, and I said, "What's better than this? You know, winning, winning twice or something." I said, "Winning three times." You know, so yeah, that was like a throwaway comment. But you know, you never, you never get shy. And then, you know, coaching Eric and Hamish in New Zealand, there, you know, they, we we're on a journey together. Uh, you know, end up being 69 in that boat class and a couple of others in a cox bear, You know, so. They didn't go. They didn't go out to come second from in any race they comp- competed in too. So it's, it's how you define that and who you're defining it with, which is a
1: pr- pretty important thing. I was listening to you speak recently, and you were talking about storytelling and how you use it to get your message across. But that these days, the story needs to be a little bit more abstract. And I was just wondering if you could tell us what you've learned about messaging when it comes to the generation you're coaching now. Well, I, th- I think so. Uh, again, um,
2: your probing questions get me on my verbose um, uh, line of thinking. But um, I had some really good learnings towards the end of uh, being in New Zealand and before I came back to Australia, and that that was about that was based a lot on perhaps mistakes in terms of athlete management. Um, by not being contemporary enough and moving and reading the play, you know, utilising sort of your old skills and this is how they behave, I behave, and we just we just career on and then you realise, you know, that that's not necessarily how to go. So then you think, well, if you're going to survive in the industry, then you need to bring yourself up to speed in terms of the athletes. It's all about them. That's, that's the important thing. So if athletes are different, for want of a better word, today than what they were 20 or 30 years ago, then... What is the difference you know you can easily say they're different by what you can blame social media you can you can put a spin on it how you like, but their learning skills and and if we study back when I went to uni you front up every day and you went to lectures and now it's all online there's there's significant changes in people's learning uh methodologies, and therefore we need to understand that and move with it so i've tried to sort of listen, read, learn, you know, from other people about how to do it. And certainly that concept of abstract is really important. They're very visual learners, you know, so you don't tell so much. You know, you give them something to actually see and understand it and then they go on their learning journey and try and make sure there's some understanding and you think they're going a little bit the wrong way, you try and tap them and and bring them back to where it needs to be or give them some references to, to go and research. So there's a lot of differences from just, you know, telling them what they need to do to now being part of their learning journey. So uh, the abstract aspect of it, I think, is really, really important, you know. know, And sometimes, you know, you'll even, not joke, but you see that picture on the wall there, you know, it might be some buildings, whatever. It's not really about buildings, is it? What is it, you know? And let their mind run, you know, into, well, it's actually horses in a field, and you're going, is it? Or, Or just try to take them into their own space, you know, about that sort of side of things. And so telling stories... You, you've probably got to be careful the story's not about you, but it's about activities that have happened before that they can feel that they can relate to, you know, people they know or or, or an event that they, they're going to that someone else has been to previously or, or some sort of scenario where the story is really strong. And I'm working with um, uh, Sports Commission the University of Queensland in a mental performance coaching program at the moment, and that's a big part um, about us being mentors to younger coaches coming through. You know, it's the ability to tell the story and to have it relatable so that people can understand, well, what's the messaging that you're trying to give within the story? So um, you've probably got to be careful you don't story tell all day, but uh, I, I find myself doing it far more now and because I'm being a bit more schooled into that line of learning, um, that I, I think it's a really powerful tool And fun. It's fun to get some sort of um, enjoyable experiences across and what the purpose and meaning of it all was.
1: Well, from storytelling to data, because rowing is awash with data, but I was intrigued to read how you use data more as an instructional tool than a policing tool. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that.
2: Yeah, that's a little bit of an oxymoron in one sense, is, Um there's probably a lie involved in that. Um, in, in one sense, it, it certainly is a policing tool. You know, I think that that's not the reason you do it, but ultimately, you know, if there's a set of information there that you're looking at, but you're never going to relate that to the athletes in terms of. I looked at your data, you're not training hard enough, therefore. So they don't want the data to be collected if you go down that path. But you're certainly looking at it from that sort of point of view, but you're not wanting them to think about it from that point of view. Otherwise, you'd lose the, mes- the messaging that you're trying to actually get there as the instructional piece, which is where I come from in it all. So it's a bit like if um, uh, an athlete is injured, and we work really well with soft tissue people and the doctors and that sort of stuff there too. You know you feel far more comfortable. When there's an image of something, you know, when and the doctors are very capable people, you know, when they get to a point in time, I think it's this, I think it's that, and you you you're saying, let's scan it, let let's let's get the hard data, you know, so let's put the wires on the boat, let's let's get the GPS out, let's let's not muck around here so we can actually have some real data. Um, but it it, it can't be lost then too, in terms of the artful use of that there too, you know, that Yes, it might say this. I've seen that before. We've done this to try and rectify it before. Is that relevant in this day and age or this particular crew or person as well too? And and that's where you're bouncing between the really important need for data and the ability for you to say, well, that person row's too short or they don't row hard enough, whatever it is, but then your mind has got to go to, well, how do I fix that? And, um, yeah, so... when, when you say it's not a policing tool, it's not for them, but it is in my mind in terms of saying, well, that's not, not good enough, but I'm not going to go and tell them it's not good enough. I'm going to try and work a way to make them improve upon that. So, yeah, sometimes when we, when we um, get interviewed or, or whatever, we don't get the right depth and necessarily um,
1: the, or the explanation about how we might use data and for what particular purpose. No, I think it's a great answer and I think it will resonate with a lot of people listening, you know, that the numbers are one thing, but the interpretation and communication about them is another thing. So I think it's it's a it's a very applicable answer to all of us. Yeah. But I wanted to talk about flexibility. You're in, you're an advocate of building flexibility into training so that it doesn't become too singular and focus and monotonous and so forth. But could you tell us why variety is such an important part of your philosophy?
2: Well, I I come from a physical education background. So the very first unit I studied in uh, in phys ed was sociology, the sociology of sport. And I can still remember my lecturer, Rob Sands. uh, He wore uh, sandals. He was a cool dude. Um, And there was just a couple of things like day one, you know, in terms of... Why are we doing this, you know? And then, therefore, then the theory of play comes into process about it, you know? And if you have that sort of understanding as a sports coach, what does a little kid want to actually do and get out of sport? And then as they grow, what do they want to get out of sport? So because that was sort of strong in my own learnings earlier on, then sport's just a journey. It's just an activity that they're doing in life, you know, and, and there'll be a point in time, as James Hopkins said, I'm going to stay keep doing this as long as I can because I'm going to be longer retired than I am going to be in it. And so if you realise that you're part of a journey, which might only be, you know, if you're lucky, a fifth of their life or something like that then too, then it's got to be part of their life at the same time. You know, if you make it just all about that and nothing else, then there's, there's a potential for, for missing the point, you know, and missing is there something else that's going to stimulate them for why they actually want to actually do it? And so as I've sort of gone on, you know, that gets more into mindset management and, you know, teaching skills in that area there too and their own ability to understand mindfulness about, you know, why are they doing it and, you know, are they enjoying what they're actually doing? Can they live the the real experience about it? And so as a coach, you know, you're trying to make sure you impart that. So if I don't go down that journey there and create flexibility in it there, you know, it's all work and no no play, no fun, no 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 enjoyment to it. Now that doesn't mean I'm just this laissez faire easy go. I'm completely and utterly the opposite. But I certainly try and make sure that I, my eye still tells me when this is getting a bit too serious and when it needs to lighten up. You know, because you can't avoid, you can't succeed at the top without the hard work. That, that's just in our sport. It's a very physical sport. You you get a bit too laissez-fairey and, and just have a good time all the time there too. Unless you've got absolute brilliant parents who uh, gave you the greatest talent the world's ever seen, then you can't succeed. You can't succeed without the hard work in it. But what what defines the other side of it, that they've got the desire to want to do all the hard work as well. So, yeah, so holistic, what, other sort of words you, you might want to use. Plus being institutionalised now for... 30 odd years within a multidisciplinary approach, too. You know, you and, and having interviewed so many people for roles within uh, sport as well, and the question, you know, what's your thoughts about multidisciplinary? So you're involving all the practitioners and others there, too. So if you don't have an understanding of all of that, then I'm, I'm not certain that you're ready to be an, an absolutely elite coach.
1: Now, when you're starting to coach a new crew, whether it's Eric and Hamish or whether it's a school's team, what are the things that you do first?
2: Um, yeah, it's like the old what do you do in your first 100 days, you know, of a job. So if you want to impress someone, you tell them you're going to do this and do that and whatever, and you don't even know what the job is. You know? So that's you're sort of like you're winging it a bit too much. So I remember Hamish uh, Bond um it was, it was a great introduction to coaching those, those guys. You know, they, uh, uh, Rowan New Zealand and Alan, because he was the, the performance director, thought that I would be a good fit for where they were. And, and Alan and I talked about me going there a bit and then the job was formal and then I had to apply and those sort of things there. And then there was a set date. So I arrived and trial. that was the first day of trials in 2013. And then the plan was after trials there, I would meet with Eric and Hamish at that stage, Eric had a um, young Zach would have been not even two, he would have been 18 months probably old. And, and so he he had other things to do. He wasn't going to wait for the, this new coach, you know, he's just going to get on with what he needed to get on to. And Hamish a completely different person. So he dutifully waited and sat there. So he and I, we sat down and we had a great sort of chat. And, you know, I knew who he was, or he knew who I was, but it's all been from afar, you know. So you think, well, let's just start our relationship. And he said to me, he said, "Um, what you'll see is my all goes really deep. He said, Every coach I've had to try to fix that, you can try and fix that as well too and And I remember saying, Hamish, you haven't lost a race for four years. I think we'll just leave that how it is for the time being. We'll just have a little bit of think about that a bit later on, you know so in other words, you know, my brain could have gone, right, he's thrown me a challenge, you know, I'm an expert coach, you know. He sees that as a problem. I'll go on a journey to fix that, you know, rather than go, why don't I just sit back for a little while, have a look at what's going on before I jump in, in, into something. And when I do coach education, certainly for our Level 2 uh, rowing coaching there, we review video of mistakes that a crews have made. And so if you ask any um, you know, young up-and-coming rowing coach, what is wrong with this crew there, they take the question so literally it's not funny. So they're looking to try and impress you. Oh, the blade skies in the air or they, it's messy or they're not in time. They're giving you some sort of clinical mistake associated with it. But what we try and teach is to say, find out the context that sits behind it. Who, who, who's this crew? What level of competition are they going into? How often do they train? How fit are they? And so without context, you can't necessarily sort of sit and go in and go, bing, you know, this is what we're actually going to do. So, And, and I'm a very forthright sort of type person, so if anyone's just going to just charge in relentlessly, it's me, but, you know, I've probably made a couple of mistakes from that point of view. So my, my first method is to sit back for a moment, you know, find out everything you need to actually know before and then you start to get an idea well maybe I shouldn't just go down that path maybe there's a better way of looking at this and the like so I think you know for want a better word context is really important before you then start to make a decision and then you've got to be strong you know once you are then you commit I think you know a b c these are things we really need to get hold of straight off the bat not x y you know down to x y z you know but no no one can sort of handle all of that so that's probably sort of you know the, the simple way of, of saying is you know just don't go in thinking you're an expert straight away. Find out a little bit more about it. There's a funny story with with Dick and um, and Dick and i know known one another for a long period of time and um, yeah he's he's still like a pen and paper man in terms of programming and, and he's not not a big on computers and and that sort of stuff and I think that's still great. Wonderful trait, in one sense, you know, the people can can survive in today's day and age with you know just the art and the feel of what they're actually trying to do. So I went to him and said, "Mate, you've been coaching the pair for you know, have you got any data for me? You know, have you got any files or any programs or, or you know, anything that might help me? You know, with these guys." And he said, "No, oh, you're an experienced coach. You'll work it out." <laughs> and I've gone, "Ah, oh, okay." And so therefore, he, he he threw me the the the, the the chalice to be able to say, well, yeah, go and find out, you know. So so if if he, he couldn't provide that information, I respected that there too. That's the nature of the sort of person a little bit. And um, so, well, I, I couldn't rush into it because there was a whole missing piece, you know, in there that I had to, and fortunately there was a sports scientist who had a lot of the, science data and you know he and I work really well together. And so eventually you pick up the pieces and you go, right, I think I know what I'm doing here now. I feel confident I can I can run with all of this. So you know, so you gotta think on your feet, you know, you got to make good decisions and gotta seek information from whatever source it comes from
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash acast.
1: Well, here in Australia, I know that's uh, Hamish and Erica from New Zealand, but here in Australia... You're most well-known for coaching the awesome Foursome. I mean, it's been well over 30 years now, but they won back-to-back Olympic golds and they were really beloved by so many people. And I um, didn't want to ask you about the gold medals and the races. What I wanted to ask you about was how that team would debrief after a race in order to identify areas that they wanted to improve on. And I asked that because they were well-known as being very good mates, They had a laugh before the race. They didn't seem to take life too seriously. And yet they achieved such wonderful things. Yeah, um, I
2: I think they have the same trait as most really elite athletes do in terms of being very good and honest in the debriefing phase. So the laconicness and all of that, that was a little bit of a game as well. It's part of their general nature. To think that you'd be throwing a frisbee or kicking an Australian rules football around in the middle of a rowing boat park, you know, Um, that set them aside in one sense and they're winning races so all of a sudden it's all the eyes are on them and there's those cool dudes and some of them are blonde haired and they knew they liked surfing and those sort of things so we that was a bit of playoff on all of that but it was also to keep them leveled and relaxing and enjoying the sport and everything as well but certainly after performances particularly if it hadn't gone quite as well as what you wanted to their honesty and and going straight to the point in the debriefing was really really important from from that perspective you know so if there was a subpar performance it was, it was let's let's attack not not attack the the performance but let's just go straight to the root of what the problem actually is we didn't do this you know so therefore what do we need to do to make sure we don't you know, do that and, and things often are habit forming as well too and so you had to learn levels of tolerance and how you could rectify things. They they were a really important part for many years of the Victorian King's Cup crew. And the the state crew would train generally once a week, maybe sometimes twice a week there and it was a Thursday night. And every Thursday night it was the first half of the session was terrible and then the second half would pick up sticks. So you debrief that and go, well come on, let's get on next time. But but it did repeat, you know, and, and you and you try to not repeat, you know, the last thing you want to do is not have as productive uh, session so there's a level of tolerance. You go, well, what, what do we expect here? And it's a boat class. We're not in that often, and so therefore, you know, what, 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 what do we what do we expect as being good? Or do we reflect on the positives as well too? Well, you finish really well, you know. So not all is bad. And once we come to race, we'll row the boat a bit more often, and then you know that that early lack of form will probably start to disappear a bit, and we'll be okay. And a bit the same with them. Pre-racing, they generally. We'd do a thousand metre piece a couple of days before racing, and it was always slow because we were always trying to row a rhythm, and we were trying to, you know, work on our strengths. And our strengths were just this wonderful rhythm through the middle of a race, and that's where we could sort of do the, you know, really, really good work that rode really well. But if we underpinned the work in that pre-pre uh, race a couple of days earlier, then it, generally the, the boat didn't go, you know, and that would frustrate them. And, but that was quite regular, you know. So you'd have to say, well, okay, well, let's just you know, we've got that one out of our system, and with the knowledge of that, well, we're not going to make the same mistake again. You know? So they are really honest in that sort of debriefing sense, and, and really quite serious in it. Before then, there'd be like a switch, you know, and the switch would be right. We're now going back to our eight personalities, which is cool dudes and having a good time. So, so that was it made made the job of a coach quite actually easy because you weren't trying to rein in a bunch of sort of like happy-go-lucky sort of fellows type thing there too, that you couldn't get them serious about their performance. They just had this wonderful ability to switch on, switch off. Um, I think a lot of young athletes today still struggle a, a little bit with too. And so, um, yeah, and, and again, that was part of their, their nature, you know, and they were super talented, but they worked hard, hard enough, um, and therefore being honest about what you needed to do. And, they, and there were you know, stories in the book and those sort of things, as it would be with Hamish and Eric there too, where every now and again you really had to address something. So, therefore, you know, it got very serious on a few occasions, which was just like readdressing what you're there for, what you're doing, what you're not doing, how are we going to move forward from here there too. And, And so they become sort of folklore type situations that, resurrect for one of, you know, someone who might be going off the rail, but I I still regard that as pretty normal. And it's pretty, I don't think you can survive year in year out and everything is roses all the time. You've got to expect to fall over every now and again. And then it's how you
1: and how strongly you get yourself up and get yourself going again. Did they have any words or phrases that they would use when they wanted to really highlight something and make it serious?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a long time ago, so and um, I, I suffer from Alzheimer's disease. You see, so trying to remember all of those sort of things there. Um, I mean, we depending on who sat in what seat within the boat, you know, the people when the actual rowing was taking place itself the guys were really, really good at calling, particularly Mike Mackay when he sat in the in the two-seat. You know, he he was more able to read the play even better than he could even deliver himself. You know, he was actually an absolute master at it from that sort of point of view. James Tompkins had those keys at a different stage and he had a, a, a different way of going about doing it, but he had huge respect within the crew, so he would be less verbose, you wouldn't be reading the play quite so much, you know. Um, just a little bit of difference in their personality, but you, you, you needed to let them be themselves, but, you know, know who had what responsibility at what stage in, in certainly things that they would call in training and within races that they knew were sort of buttons. If you push that button, things go well. You know? So um, I, I can't remember exactly every word and phrase, but I can remember the process, you know,
1: quite well. So, Noel, when you finished in Australia and you were appointed to your new role with Rowing New Zealand, your new boss, Alan Cotter, who you spoke about earlier. He said, we were looking for someone who had achieved results as a head coach in sweep or boats, had worked successfully in a high-performance program, had the ability to develop, lead, maintain a strong team culture. And Noel has all these attributes. It's a, it's a great summary I think of your your career and what you've been able to achieve but it was the last bit I wanted to dig in a little bit with and I wanted to ask you could you tell us what a strong team culture in rowing looks like?
2: Yeah I mean in one sense referring to that was um, about managing uh, the size and depth of groups of people um, as well. New Zealand at that stage had done extremely well in small boats so the team was small and very talented and what they wanted to do was to build it. And so the men's and women's eights particularly and quads and sort of get more uh, of their athletes into teams and performing as well as the small boats. So sort of referring a little bit, well, who's got some experience in dealing with bigger numbers? And therefore, along with bigger numbers comes the need to have a good culture, you know, the more people involved in something, the more important it is for your culture to be strong so that everyone's on the same page together. So Australia being a bigger country, and particularly when we had crews based within, say, the AIS framework, which now in rowing in Australia is that's the men's national training centre. We have a women's national training centre in New South Wales in Penrith, and it's a matter of putting the best people together and getting them to work for the for the, for the common good. And uh, so having been a leader within that environment there, you know, you probably, I had some experiences, well, how how do you make this work? Because they're actually teammates on one sense, but they're enemies on on the other because they race against one another all the time. And there's only so many seats in this boat or that boat or, or the other boat. And so Getting some clear messaging across about where priorities lie, and that you know we're here every day for the common good of what we're trying to do, and every, all of you are important. But at the end of the day, we can only put two in the pair, and we can only put four in the four, you know, and we're going to have to understand and respect one another to do it. To be to be honest, I I, I don't know that I did a really really good job at that. Um, I don't think I did a bad, a really bad job at it, but I've I was always one step ahead of myself about what I thought it needed to look like and be like. And I got frustrated in one sense because I didn't – I couldn't quite get on the, you know, on the athlete wavelength and understand necessarily where they were coming from, you know. And and sometimes I'm almost too simple in how I think, you know. And you've got athlete number 10. Realistically, you know, uh, you ask a whole heap of people and that athlete's in the middle of the pack – they actually want to be in the top couple of you know, top couple, you know. And, and my mind is taking me to, what bit don't you get? You know, you, you, you're number ten. You're not going to be number one or two, you know. But I knew I couldn't go down that path and explain that or say that to them. I'm and then, then trying to work out how do I let this athlete know that they're not at the top of the tree, and but there's other opportunities for them, you know. So I, I found that quite a, a struggle to be able to be. As an effective leader, as if I look back, as I would have liked to have actually been. So, I don't, if, if other people looking at it might say, oh, he did a reasonably good job. And, and therefore, I was more experienced than anyone was in New Zealand at doing it. But I, I still found that quite a challenge. And the current head coach of the men's training centre, he, he was my senior coach and I was a mentor for him when I was there, sort of through the 2009 to 12, that sort of period there too. And, and he's really good at it, you know. He's Some some coaches, his leaders, have that little bit of different personality where he's strong in what he says, um, but he's really meaningful in terms of being able to let them have an understanding. And, and we all learn. We learn from one another as well too. So he produces good data sets to say, well, here's the ranking, fellas. You know, let's, let's not get too upset about it a little well or two. So I think if I actually went back into that environment or New Zealand again... I'd be far better at doing it a second time round by what I wasn't good at as part from what I was probably more experienced at and maybe better at than anyone in New Zealand was at that particular stage. But to say that I actually thrived in that environment doing all the right things, I, I did find that a challenge, you know, and we had a couple of good years with the men's eight and then we had a few years struggling and then, of course, the best thing they did was get rid of me and then um, well, I left and, and then have enough time to rebuild and, and and some wonderful stories have come out of that. That and to, to be part of the journey with those guys that I started with, but to see what they did in 2021 in Tokyo, winning the men's gold and the women's silver and having the women win a gold medal before that as well too, to think I played a small role in that, I'm really, really proud of. But to think that I had anything really to do with the end success, that would be that that'll um telling you quite a porky pie from that sort of point of view. So, yeah, I was the right person probably by way of, you know, world experiences in one sense, but even I wasn't brilliant at doing all of that. So when when you tell that to a journalist, of course, that's a bit of a good story, you know, to tell them that that's what, that's what this guy's there for. But at least I'd been in the environment, you know, at least I'd been in big centres, had a far better understanding about all of that at, at the time. So I was probably the right person, but it wasn't necessarily that I was A guru at it by any imagination
1: well maybe not a maybe not a guru but as you did allude to there you were good at getting people to work for the common good and I'd like to pick up on this theme because what's really unique about your story is that twice in your career you've coached teams to -to back-to-back Olympic goals which is very very rare what has this taught you, Know when you reflect on it? What has this taught you about getting teams in sync with each other?
2: Yeah, I think um, I don't know whether necessarily whether winning them, you know, whether it be back-to-back or even if you won three times in a row, for example. Um, you know, if you think of something like Drew Ginn, James Tompkins, you know, or well, Drew, you know, he went back-to-back-to-back, you know, as an athlete, but... It, each of them are, are, a, are a separate challenge in their own right, and I'm an avid Geelong football club supporter at the moment. You know and they're the premiers, and Chris Scott, you know, has obviously done a sensational job there too. And, and he'll wax that lyrical and probably tell people what he wants to believe. But he probably, I'd say, you know, had a guess. You know, he's quite heartfelt of it. Well, forget about last year. You know, that's that's gone. That this is a new campaign we've got different personnel in there as well too. So I think all the way through that, you know, I've always taken that attitude, you know, and and it's quite tough for people who have actually won because then the see old slippery slope, you know, so if you don't win, you've lost principle, you know, and, um, and that puts a different level of pressure on and expectation and those sort of things. You know, the first time round it's, okay, you might have been favourites or second favourite and you go in, there's an expectation you're going to do okay. But within the second time around, you're defending your title. So it brings a different level of um, uh, uh, pressure, both you know externally and internally in terms of what you're trying to do. But you've got to try and not get too caught up in all of that sort of stuff. And each campaign has its own goals and you're trying to you're trying to achieve those goals that will give you the result in those particular performances. But you do know that it's sitting, you know, it's just sitting on the, on the on the shoulder all the time, the pressure. And, and as a coach, it, was, it never worried or feared me because it was a very easy cliche for people to say, of course, if they win again, it's because they're good. And if they lose, it'll be your fault, you know. So, uh, you know, so you go, yeah, but I, I, I never get up in the morning, um, you know looking at it in, in that sort of uh, fashion. As a coach, you never saw that sort of pressure, you know. But the athletes, I'm sure, you know, they they would have lived that a lot. And, and as you hear, often they will say after certainly the second time round is what a relief that actually was to get it out of the way. So it's probably easier to win three times because you've already won twice, you know, but I, I think you just got to take each campaign as a separate campaign and and, and look at where you're at in those journeys. And certainly with the four, change your personnel, change the seating, you know, that in itself is, is is enough stimulus to sort of come at things a little bit different way and, and different personalities. So, you know, if you thought you were just going to try and rub a stamp, no, that's, I don't, I don't think, you know, that, that's unlikely. It might be if you're an individual, an individual sport, and if you can run 10 seconds, you know, that'll get you to win and you do it again. Well, that, that might be a little bit different, not, not in our sport where there's so many moving parts.
1: One final question if I could, Noel, Because I can see it's the the sun's coming up and your owners are going to be coming in soon for their for their daily workout. But I'd like to preface this final question with a quote. And it's actually from you. When you say, That's my motivation. It isn't about me. I have this inherent desire to want to make younger people better at what they're actually doing and provide an opportunity for them. And I know you've you've alluded to this kind of philosophy through this interview, but Many of these younger people you coached are now adults and they're coaching themselves. And I'm wondering, how do you hope they describe the influence you've had on their lives?
2: Yeah, it's interesting um, when because you sent me that question beforehand. Uh, it's probably the one I reflect on, maybe because it's last. That might show you some sort of my concentration span or something. Um, but it was the one I did reflect on uh, a little bit. I think when you've been through a journey with athletes like that and you've shared so many experiences, then they're trying to get on a similar sort of journey and replicate, you know, in their way, sort of what coaching practice is. I'm, I'm not certain necessarily you would expect them to come to you and say, You've taught me so many lessons. I will now be able to impart, you know, the knowledge of those lessons on other people. I would see them as being more seamless you know if I've done a good job it's seamless you know that they wouldn't have reflected on they'll just be doing little bits and pieces of what you might have had on along their journey but the the importance is that they're creating their own journey and if you were to be involved in any sort of uh, mentorship or whatever you would be really trying to go down that path you know not this is how I did it if you do what I did you'll have a good career as well there too because that's complete rubbish you know so I would certainly be thinking about it there too. And, and if you've taught them enough, you don't, I don't think you need to reflect on it. The more important one are the other people who, who rowing was just a thing that they did as part of their life and you taught them lessons for life in that journey. So I get excited still by uh, kids I taught at school or coached at school who still drop you lines or still are swimming marathons and dropping a line what would Dono have done, you know, how would he have managed this? I've still got his words ringing in my ear when it got tough in the last kilometre and you go, wow, you know, like that's I, – I take more heart out of that than the people who you had longer journeys with because you've done everything, you know. you It wasn't just a short part of the life where, you, where they got something they can really reflect on, you know. The, the long coaching journey was a lot of reflection and, as I said, should be seamless but it's the – it's the kids who it's more impactful when you have impactful uh, I- impact on people that you know you like to think that later on in life they can say that was really important. I learned some lessons from that and I'm still doing those things today as a result of what you taught me. I'm going, gee, that's good. You know, that that ego uh, not ego, but that stimulates you to say, well, I'd like to keep doing that. and keep giving other young people an opportunity to to learn, you know, if I've got something to give and can I make them better for it there too? Because uh, some people externally would probably say my ego's off the charts, but but I I don't think that's any motivation for why I I get up or, you know, any honour or glory or anything in the whole thing. If I can't make them better today than they were yesterday, then... I'm in the wrong caper, you know. Th- I, that That's the big sign to retire and, and give it away. But And so I'm quite heartfelt from that sort of point of view, you know. If I if I don't sleep at night, Noddle because some of the things we referenced earlier about data or improving or how can I fix something, whatever, it'll be because I'm scratching my head trying to work out, how can I make this better? This guy does this and does that or school this, you know, she needs to do this. How, how, can, I, how can I get part of that journey to be able to make that person better? You know? So when that fire goes out, well, that's game over, you know, give it away,
1: read the paper, go I fishing. Don't, I don't think that fire ever goes out with great coaches, Noel, but let's let's see. It's been fantastic to spend an hour with you this morning. It's uh, It's been a great uh, rec- time to recollect for me from all those great mem- mem- moments that the awesome foursome gave us. So thanks very much for your time and I wish you all the best for the season ahead.
2: Thank you, Paul. And keep up your good work uh, telling these stories. I, um, you might expect to call at some stage from Bill Daverin who he heads up the um, coaching unit at the AIS. Um, he knows of you and of your podcast. Um, and I ran into him just, just out of chance actually last night and we've been sort of colleagues and mates for 30-odd years too. And I reference I was doing this this morning there too. So there's people out there that uh, would. Yeah, maybe like to get on that bandwagon of yours at the same time there too
1: and get, get some good stories told. There's plenty of room on the bandwagon. I'll follow up with you on him later on. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, yeah. thanks Noel.
2: Right on Paul. See you mate.
1: Hi everyone, you have been listening to the great coach Noel Donaldson. I hope you got a lot out of Noel's self-reflective and insightful style. And a few ideas that you can bring back to your own dinner table, locker room or work table for discussion. When I listened back, some of the other key highlights for me were Noel's view on the importance of taking time to understand the context when you take over new teams and not rushing in with all the answers. The way he uses storytelling in his communication style these days, as it gives the athlete room to interpret the message in a way that is most effective for them. And the role that being mindful plays in his coaching from the perspective of, can people identify why they are doing it and are they actually enjoying the activity itself? I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like McAdam, who kept it short and sweet when he said, love it, great insights, good podcast, keep it going. Thanks, McAdam. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And if they're positive ones, then please let your friends and family know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.